The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Hi, if you don't know by now, my name is Brianna. <laughs> and um, I've been going to Story City for about a year and a half, and I work up in kids kids men four four-year-olds through kindergarten and it's great guys just saying um if you please stand uh, we're going to read Luke 22 54 through 62 they seized him led him away and brought him into the high priest's house meanwhile Peter was following at a distance they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together and Peter sat among them When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, This man was with him too, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. In a little while, in a little while, someone else saw him and said, You're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, This man was certainly with him, since he is also a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you for that. Well, welcome to part two of our three-part series on guilt and grace. Um, I think it's sometimes really difficult to diagnose a problem, and I want to give you a quick little story, and then we'll pray and get into this. So, um, as many of you may not know, I used to work at Target at their headquarters in Minneapolis. Um, One of the groups that I was helping be responsible for was um, baby diapers, the guy who was directly responsible for that was a single male who had never had a baby in his life. I just add that fact because it's going to become important in a minute. Um, diaper sales began to decline rapidly. We began to bring in customers and begin to interview them as to what was going on, what was important in a diaper. And these sleep-deprived moms would be talking and we'd be asking them questions about how important is it to have a Mickey Mouse on it and uh, what about environmentally friendly diapers and the number one thing that all moms wanted was the same answer over and over again which was they shouldn't leak followed by they shouldn't leak followed by they shouldn't leak they were like I don't care and and then this this poor guy who was uh, trying to understand babies I think at the same time um, kept asking them what about this environmentally friendly thing? And I still remember this lady almost reaching across the table to him and grabbed him and said, I don't care if you make it with baby eagle feathers. It shouldn't leak. Found out he had removed, made a choice to remove the elastic in the back of the diapers. Yeah, those of you who know, know. These moms would say, next time you take that out, you're coming to my house at 2 a.m. and we're cleaning this baby from the shoulder blades down together, right? So... But here's what's interesting, right? And this is, this is part of what we've been talking about here, which is it's, it's difficult sometimes to figure out what's going on. And what I want to talk about in a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to talk about this, is how does guilt help us actually accomplish figuring out what's going on? 
Guilt actually plays an important role in our diagnosis of ourselves. Not to put a pun in there, but I will. Sometimes our internal diapers are leaking, right? And figuring out what's going on is an important part of this. So we'll pray and then we'll get into this. Does that work? All right, part two of this. God, we thank you for being with us. We don't need more of you. Sorry, we don't need more of us. We don't need more of me. We do need more of you. I pray that you'd bless our time together. Amen. All right, so last week, we introduced our story. We looked at the anatomy of guilt, where it comes from, and the impact of this guilt on our lives, especially when we don't have answers to address it. We began following two parallel stories in the Bible of two of Jesus' disciples. One of them was Judas. I made the comment, you don't see a lot of kids named Judas nowadays, and there's a reason for that. And the other one was Peter. Judas made the moral choice to trade Jesus for money, which we know was sin. And the result of that, or the byproduct of that, was guilt. And guilt is that internal voice and that reality that constantly reminds us that we did something morally wrong and that our choice and action separated us from others in God. Judas sought to answer his question of guilt on his own, and as we saw last time, it ended tragically for him. Well, I want you to follow a little bit of an intellectual argument for a second here. This is what I'm calling guilt as a prompt to action. So I believe guilt plays an interesting role as a marker and a sign for us. Let me explain. One of the choices we have in life that we all make is what is our worldview going to be? How are we going to make decisions in life? I think early on, one of the questions famously people have asked was, am I intellectually or intelligently created? And did my creator make me for a purpose and with a moral standard? The question is basically, is there a God and is there right and wrong? How you answer that question makes a big difference. If you say, no, there is no intelligent creator and I'm independently created, then we tend toward two ways of designing our worldview and the moral standards we follow. Either we drift to a society-centric view anchored in the broad agreement of the society we're in. And uh, this ultimately says society decides what's right and wrong. We can see some of the challenges with that because it depends on which society you're in and how well they're doing on that. Or you develop an individualistic code of conduct or moral code that says, I choose right and wrong, and I make my choices based on my interests and what I can get away with through either power, force, trickery, or collaboration. Both of these worlds tend to have their their large challenges. However, if you've determined that you have been intellectually made or intelligently made and that your creator is good and has determined a moral code and that moral code has been designed for your best life, understanding and following that code will be a high priority for you. And breaking that code will create a rift with your creator and the best life for yourself. It will create disharmony and you will feel that in your soul. The Christian worldview says that we are created by God and his moral code can be found in the Bible and that we are called to keep that moral code for good and for the good of those around us. Does that make sense? So here's what's interesting. Is guilt seems to be an interesting feeling in the midst of all this. Guilt is one of those uncomfortable feelings that I believe exist to show us that we have indeed are created and that there is a moral code. Otherwise, why would it exist? If you don't believe or don't believe that there is someone who's created you, 
then guilt is simply just an annoying feeling that should be ignored or squashed. However, that's not what I believe. I think guilt is a giant blinking neon sign in our heart that keeps flashing that something is off and that action is required. You see, guilt is pointing to something. And I believe that that's pointing us to actually God's solution for the guilt within us. Does that make sense? Do you guys follow that? So here's where I want to pick up Peter's story again. We had it read before. If you recall last time, we're going to talk a little bit more about this. Judas ended his life as a result of not being able to answer his own guilt, and it crushed him. Peter, on the other hand, does not have that same story as he was a follower of Jesus. So if you recall last time, Jesus said that he, uh, that, that he was about to be betrayed by someone of his 12 disciples, and it shocked and horrified them. And one of them was going to do this. And what was interesting about this, immediately what sprung up among the 12 disciples was a fantastic contest, as I like to say. They had no idea what to do with this. Jesus sat there and said, one of you is going to betray me. And that shocked them, horrified them, that made them feel really uncomfortable in that. So they devised a way of figuring this out, which was a contest. Basically said, we're going to put ourselves in order from 1 to 12, greatest to worst. And if you're in that 12th spot, you must be the one who's going to do this, which is fascinating to watch. Um, What's interesting about this, Peter actually steps in to have Jesus weigh in on that 1 to 12 game. I actually think he did this because he was probably in the top three. And he was sitting there saying, okay, Jesus, can you weigh in for a second? Listen, I know I'm probably one, maybe two, but probably one. We're really struggling with seven, eight. And I think Matthew might be 11 or 12. (laughs) I don't want to say that out loud, but that's what I'm thinking. And last time we saw that very night, Jesus says, Peter, actually, you're going to deny me three times. Not someday, but tonight. Last time we looked, we saw Peter double down as well on his claim, right? He gets out his I'm with Jesus, ride or die, prisoner death t-shirt, slips that on, his giant foam finger that says I'm number one, and says, how could this be possible? But Jesus doubles down and says, yeah, it's tonight. Tonight, before even a rooster crows, you're going to deny me. So after dinner, Jesus and the 12 go out for a walk in an orchard. And the trap that Judas had, had laid is sprung. Jesus is arrested, tied up, and led off. And the captors, those who took him, were part of the, the moral elite. They were part of the church. They arrested Jesus. And they were looking for the death penalty for the crimes that they had perceived Jesus had done. This was not just a misdemeanor, loitering after dark in the park. This was, this was crimes they were looking to pin on Jesus that ultimately had the death penalty. All his disciples run off. As soon as he gets arrested, everyone scatters, except for Peter. He follows at a distance that allows him a chance to see what's going on, but not so close to be a part of it. You kind of know that distance? It's kind of right in that nice in-between spot, right? His I'm number one foam finger is gone. He slipped on his sweatshirt over top of his I'm with Jesus, ride or die, prisoner death. He's feeling a little more conspicuous. And at this point in the evening, the the evening slows down as Jesus is brought into a large temple complex and a mock trial kind of begins that spends most of the night. Peter eventually gathers around the communal fire that was probably lit outside. People are drifting in and out as the night goes on. And this is when Peter encounters his three denials, which we just read. The first one, 
represents the lowest person in their society culture. It was a slave girl. Walks up, says to Peter, wait a minute, aren't you with Jesus? Is that a Jesus ride or die t-shirt I see peeking out? Peter immediately says no. He's scared of the lowest person on the cultural rung. Two others eventually come to him and some other passages describe that Peter gets mad, starts screaming, swearing, yelling, and says, I'm not with him. I don't know who he is. So here's Jesus finally arriving at where, sorry, Peter arriving at where Jesus predicted. Similar to the question we asked last time, I want to ask the same question. What was Peter wanting? What was he exchanging Jesus for? So we see this exchange yet again. Judas exchanged money for Jesus. Peter was exchanging Jesus for something. Reputation, safety, status. So we last, as we talked last time, we saw that at the core, all sin is an exchange of God and his ways for our ways. We see Peter make this exchange. He wants safety, comfort, and realize that following Jesus at this moment was very risky. And Peter maneuvers his life through a series of exchanges to get what he wanted. Let me read that again. He saw that following Jesus was risky, and Peter maneuvers his life through a series of exchanges to get what he wanted. At this point, we should be seeing ourselves a bit in this. If you remember last time, Jesus had predicted that this behavior with Peter because Jesus knew Peter's heart. Peter, you have a fear of people and a desire for comfort and safety. That fear controls you and drives you. And given the right opportunity, you will let that fear drive you away from me. And you'll be willing to break your relationships with those around you and your relationship with me to get what your heart is craving. You want safety and comfort. And you're willing to exchange me to pursue it in your way. But here's what amazing, I think, is that if you look, who is strength? Who is safety? Jesus is. And I think there's a part of this that Jesus begins to whisper, look at me. Peter, I know what you want. I can see your heart. I'm even predicting that you will make this exchange tonight, but look at me. And here is again where we can all relate to Peter. We tend to have these castles we've built in our lives that we believe give us safety, whether it's control, relationships, money, our body, whether our finances or career or jobs keep us safe. We all are pursuing safety of some way. And what's funny is we actually despise other people's safety that's not ours, right? Can't believe you're afraid of that. That's stupid, but my fears are legitimate. In reality, they're all showing us these castles we tend to try to build. But Josh, you don't understand my situation or my background or my hurt that I've been through. And you're probably right. I probably don't know it. But here's the thing. Jesus actually does. He revealed Peter's heart to him and told him that his little, remember those little fists of fury that Peter said? You know why we're not going to fall apart? Look at these hands. They're going to hold on to you, right? Jesus, do you see these hands? These hands were made for holding. I'm going to hold on to you. And Jesus told him, not only are you going to let go, you're going to push away. And the reason why you're not going to fall is because of what? My hands are holding you. He had given Peter hope and comfort. Peter had worked so hard to build this castle of his own safety, probably his whole life. This probably didn't spring up overnight, right? wonder what the rest of his life looked like. Peter, you've worked so hard. 
you don't have to do this anymore. Your castle building is exhausting. Put down the tools and rest in my arms. I think that was the invitation of Christ at that moment for Peter. I can see you, Peter. I know what's in there. And I'm telling you this, not because I want to judge you, because I want you to see that I can see it, and there's a better answer for you. I tell my kids this sometimes, and by kids, I mean me, and by me, I mean my wife, and by wife, I mean everybody I talk to. I think Jesus says to us, you know, it's okay to just crawl into my lap and be held. You don't have to be all put together and all good. You can be a mess, crawl into my lap, because I already know all about it. I think that's one of the things that keeps us there is, what if he sees me? He does. We're going to get to that in a second. This section I call the look. This brings us to one of my favorite action-packed parts of the story and quite possibly the most famous chicken in the world. This rooster here. I have a couple things I want to get to real fast. Peter finishes talking, denying Christ in this rooster crows, which triggers this flood of, oh man, I just did what I swore I would never do and Jesus said I would do this. I hope he didn't see that. And the passage literally says this, then Jesus turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the words and it says, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. What do you think that look was like? I, when I counsel this passage, I always ask everyone, it reveals a lot of who they are. Oh, he'd be so mad at me. Oh, shame. I don't know. He wouldn't look at me. I wouldn't look at him. Like there's this whole piece of this part of it. And so it was interesting. I actually looked up. Um, there's some old-timey guys, usually northern European white guys, who paint a lot of old pictures, right, a couple hundred years ago. And, and whenever they painted this scene from the Bible, I was fascinated by this look that Jesus gave was the central theme of a lot of their paintings. So here we go. That's Peter, kind of that downward look. Fire going on there. There's the people accusing. There's Jesus walking through. There's the chicken rooster with his two chickens. Well done, my friend. <laughs> Next picture. All right, here, here's, here's another one. Oh, there's Jesus. That's the side eye look right there, right? There you go. Despite it being a confluence of the world, everyone looks northern European and white in every one of these paintings. So again, culturally, we got this off pretty bad. But next one, this one. This has nothing to do with anything. That is Peter. That mustache is spectacular. I had two questions. One, was that the painter's kind of rendition of like, I wish I had this? Or was it the person who commissioned him who said, I want you to paint me in the picture and he kept coming back with like, nope, more mustache. I really need this mustache to come. So all right, that's just, uh, skip that one. Oh, here it is again. Here's Peter, Jesus. Next one. Oh, this is my favorite. This person's all sorts of condescending. Look at this. From the angle, he's looking down. There's the rooster. There's Peter. I find it interesting how each of them tries to capture what this moment had been like. I don't think there's any more pictures, right? Okay, good. I remember that. The biblical scene, as I said before, is, is commonly painted. And what's funny to me is all the parts of the story, but this is the one that's painted throughout history. I wasn't there for that moment. No one was. So these painters are just trying to imagine what it is and probably telling more about who they are than anything else. But whatever that look was, 
guilt and shame come crashing over Peter, and ultimately he leaves weeping or crying. But this is my favorite part. He's not the only one that leaves. Do you know that? So Peter goes one way, but Jesus goes somewhere else. Do you guys know where Jesus is going at this point? See, Jesus leaves too. You see that Jesus is about to die. He's going to the cross, and Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection is the central theme to Christianity. You see, ever since the beginning, God had promised to send himself as Jesus to be a sacrifice, to pay our moral debt and restore his children back to himself. This is actually where we begin to see the end of Peter's guilt. He's leaving in tears, but if he were to look back, the Bible says that Jesus' death is the payment for our sins for those that trust him. If Peter had kept watching, he would have seen Jesus go to the cross, and he would have, if he had seen with spiritual eyes, he would have seen that each and every one of his sins was nailed to the cross and killed, done and paid for. See, Jesus willingly took our sins on himself. He stood up in the courtroom of history and said, Peter, put your sins on me, including all that guilt you carry, including that denial you just did in the courtroom with me. You don't have to carry it anymore. I will pay for it. Peter, your sin has been bought at a great price. I've taken it. It's been nailed to the cross. It has been covered, paid, killed, destroyed, and finished. I actually imagine Jesus' look of one of great compassion, not judgment. The reason why I believe that so strongly is because Jesus turned and went to the cross for Peter. He didn't go and write it in his little ledger book of like, Peter, we got to talk about this. I'm so disappointed and embarrassed with you. He said, Peter, look at me. I'm going to take this to the cross. If John 3.16 could be in a stair, wouldn't that be the one maybe that we saw? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Whoever believed in him would not perish. Peter, I came to carry and pay for this exact moment. Peter, look, your sin and guilt are being crushed. The Bible is full of hope to these struggles with guilt and that God's answer for our guilt is Christ's death on the cross. Let me share a few verses. In Isaiah, it says this, I'm the one who blots out your transgression for my own sake. I will remember your sins no more. First John says this, God is faithful and reliable, trustworthy. If we confess our sins, he forgives them and cleanses us from everything we've done. Hebrews says this, I will forgive your wickedness and will never again remember your sins. Hebrews 9 says this, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, purifying our conscience from dead work and worship to the living God. Psalm 32 says this, happy is the person whose sins are forgiven, whose wrongs are pardoned. Happy is the person who the Lord does not consider guilty, there's our word, not considered guilty, in whom there is nothing false. When I kept these things to myself, I felt weak. And deep inside, I moaned all day long. My strength was gone. And then I confessed my sin and didn't hide my guilt. And I said, I will confess my sins and you forgave my guilt. See, Jesus, Peter turned to weep. Jesus turned to put an end to Peter's sin and guilt. And back to that very beginning, right? Guilt is supposed to drive action. He's driving Peter to say, you need to go back and follow Christ, right? But it also drove Jesus to the cross for us. Isn't that a beautiful story? This is the last part. Oh, second last part, sorry. I call this, you must look 
you've already been seen. Can I get a bit personal for a second? I think in all of our lives, we all get to this moment. We sense our guilt and a moral gap from God. I even believe that in our hearts, we hear that small voice of God saying, look at me. Almost like a father, right, that takes the face of a kid and says, would you look at me? I have a two-year-old, I won't say his name, Titus, and I'll take his little face and say, look at me, and he shuts his eyes, he looks away, he puts his arms over his head, he doesn't want to look at me. I think that in our lives, we all get there. And it's hard. I can't look. I feel so shamed. I can't look. I don't want him to see him for who I am. I can't look. He might ask me to change my life choices. I can't look. I don't think Jesus is kind. I can't look. I already messed up. Why would I have God rub it in? I don't, can't look. I don't want to cry about this anymore. Can I say something? If you want God's answers for guilt, you have to look. You and God have to connect. And yes, you will be seen. But he is that father who gently takes your face and says, look at me. I know. I know it all. But look at me and see what I've done for you. Jesus says, I've already raised my hand and said, I will take your guilt and sin. It was nailed to the cross, crushed to death. It's gone. Practically speaking, how do we do this? How do you look? I actually think looking starts by praying. It's a willingness to be seen. If you love yourself from Genesis, Adam and Eve hid in the garden the minute they sinned. They did not want God to see them. And God came and found them and said, where are you? I'm looking to do life with you again. It doesn't have to be fancy. Jesus, I don't want to look at you. You can tell him that, by the way. I feel the shame and hurt and the pain from what I've done. I'm afraid that you will just condemn me even more, but we need to talk. Can, you, can this ever be restored? Can you take my sin and guilt from me? I don't want it anymore. Help me. Save me. See, this is where we share our heart with God. He already knows, but look at him. Even if the tears flow, like Peter. Sometimes we live our life so much trying not to cry. Well, guess what? Jesus cried a lot. Peter's crying a lot. And it's okay to get to that point where you say, can I just sit here, be seen, and not know what's next, but willing to be seen. Here's the last part. Trust God and speak truth to our guilt. Our relief from guilt comes when we look at Christ's work and believe that our sin and guilt has been paid for. We can leave the guilt behind because it's not ours anymore. This is called grace, God's kindness to us in exchange of ourselves by him. For those of you struggling with carrying your guilt, look at the cross. Read the story of the cross. Find out, find others who can point you to God's work. Stare at it until your heart begins to believe it. You see, your sin nailed and killed and dead has been paid for with the death of Jesus. It's not just ignored. It's not swept under the rug. It's not begrudgingly bought. Jesus isn't like, fine, I'll take it. It's not held over our head for another day. We're not going to talk about this right now, but in a month we will. That's not the heart of Jesus. It's been crushed, it's been paid for, it's been dealt with, it's been cast far away, it's been forgiven, and I could go on and on because there's so many ways in the Bible that it talks about this. Thrown as far as the east and the west, drowned in the ocean. Over and over again, God is trying to get this point across that he goes, it's done, it's paid for. 
I know some of you have done these things, right, where you write something on a stone and throw it in the ocean, kind of representing this idea of, of, of it being done for, not, not because you've done anything, but because Christ has done something and we're act of believing it. I actually imagine a better way of doing this, writing it on a brick and then blowing up that brick with dynamite. <laughs> Far more violent way of doing things. Nothing's left, it's obliterated because this is how we need to see our sins. I don't know where Susan went. Susan, what's our dynamite license situation? Non-existent. Don't have one. We need to reprioritize everything at this point. And I would also like to announce that I am now the new director of dynamite at this church. (laughs) I want no accountability or oversight. I just want to blow stuff up. (laughs) But I hope that this we can remember. And I just want to read one last verse. This one from Hebrews again. It says this, let's go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. Do you see that? This is a writer who says, you can go back to God. You can be back in his presence, sit on his lap, pull up that chair. Why? For our guilty conscience has been sprinkled with Christ's blood, there's the death on the cross, to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Isn't that amazing? So many times, Psalm 51 is one of my favorites. David actually says at one point, God, if you wash me, I'll be clean. I've tried to wash. It's not working. But Jesus, if you wash, I will be clean. So what happens from here? What happens when we live out a life of guilt-free? Not because we've buried it, but because Christ has taken it. Well, that's actually what we're going to cover next time. Do you know that Jesus rose from the dead a few days later? That's what Easter's about. And then guess what? Jesus and Peter met and talked. I wonder if that's what we're going to talk about next time. I'm going to pray real quick. These guys are going to do their music thing and we'll be done. All right. God, we just thank you that you showed us in this story that while Peter walks away and his heart is broken, you also went a direction. You went to the cross. And Peter, if he had watched, he would have seen you pay for his sins and the guilt that goes with that and the shame that often accompanies that. I pray that you bless our time. We pray that you would bless this church. I pray that this church is one that gives good answers to guilt not cheap answers to guilt, but good answers to guilt. And those in this room who have been needing to look to you, meet your gaze that they would see the love that you've poured out. I pray that you'd bless us. Amen.